are listening to Stories from Palestine podcast, a podcast recorded in Palestine and about Palestine. My name is Crystal. I am originally from the Netherlands and I am married to a Palestinian. We live in Beit Safafa between Jerusalem and Bethlehem and we run Singer Cafe and Al Jisser Bar in Beit Sahur. Before moving to Palestine in 2013, I worked as a teacher and tour guide in the Netherlands. I have a degree in history and in tour guiding and many years of tour guiding experience. Due to the COVID pandemic, tourism in Palestine came to a complete halt and that's why I started Stories from Palestine podcast in August 2020. This is the second year of the podcast with every week on Monday a new episode about the history and heritage of Palestine as well as the reality of life today. I hope you will enjoy today's episode. So in the past weeks, I've gone on several trips together with my Dutch friend Jacobin, who is a licensed tour guide here. And she's helping me a great deal with preparing for that exam that I still didn't do to get the license to be a tour guide. But the Palestinian Ministry of Tourism still did not offer us the exam. So that gives me more time to just explore more and more and discover more historic places in Palestine. During the studies that I did at the Bethlehem Bible College, it was not possible for our teacher to organize the excursions to the sites because for him and for the other students, it was very hard to obtain permits to go through the checkpoints to go to the other side of the Israeli segregation wall. Partially, that was also because of the corona pandemic and there were more restrictions, but some of the students never get permits. And I was the only one who decided to do the general exam and to study for the whole of historic Palestine and not just the West Bank or Bethlehem. So I am on a mission to explore more and more and visit a lot of places. Most of the sites I have studied in theory, but it's really important to visit the places I think I have now visited most of the really important historic sites, the pilgrimage sites, the churches. So we are now also trying to visit the sites that are a bit less known and less visited by the common tourism. And recently we went to the Nakab Desert and we visited Avdad. And that's what I want to tell you about in this podcast episode. The Nakab in Hebrew, the Negev is about 1,200 square kilometers. That is 120,000 hectare. So that is about 60% of all of historic Palestine. So more than half of the country is desert. And if you look at the map, you will see that it has a triangular shape. It is bordered by the Sinai Peninsula and on the other side by the Jordan Rift Valley. And the root letters of the word Nakab, N-Q-B, mean dry. And that's what it is. It is a very dry area. In the central part of the Nakab Desert, the rainfall is on average between 75 to 100 millimeters per year. That is three to four inches per year. But in the winter, flash floods are common. The Nakab Desert is quite rocky and the flash floods that happen in the winter created deep wadis, deep valleys, and some craters. So rather than very sandy, the desert is more 
of a rocky desert. And of that, the place that we visited is in the middle of the Nakab Desert. It's about two, two and a half hours drive south of Jerusalem, depending on the traffic. And it is still almost an hour south of Beersheba or Beersheba. Avdad is an archaeological site. It is one of the cities that was originally built by the Nabataeans. It was built on the incense route. And since 2005, it is one of the four towns that are on the UNESCO World Heritage List as the desert cities in the Negev on the incense route. The other towns are Memshit, Shifta, and Halusa. So let's talk a little bit about the incense route and about who were the Nabataeans. The incense and spices route was a very profitable trade route that started in the eastern part of South of Arabia, the area of current-day Oman and Yemen. It went overland and then partially over the Red Sea, and then again overland through the Nakab Desert to the port of Gaza. And from the port of Gaza, the produce was then transported by boat over the Mediterranean Sea and beyond. This route, the incense route, flourished between the 3rd century before Common Era and the 2nd century after Common Era. The most traded products on this route were frankincense and myrrh. But beside frankincense and myrrh, they also traded in pearls from the Persian Gulf, silk from China, and spices and cotton from India. But what is frankincense and myrrh? They are both resins that are extracted from trees. Frankincense comes from the sap, the dried sap of the boswellia trees. And myrrh comes from the lifeblood of the comifora. When the resin is hardened, it looks like small chunks. And these were burned in the temples as incense. They were used to worship the different gods, the Greek and the Roman gods in the temples. Frankincense was also used for medicinal purposes and sometimes for cosmetic purposes. It had a very nice smell and it was in such a high demand. And the trees that produce this resin can only grow on the Arabian Peninsula. So there was a high demand and there was a very short supply, which meant that the price was very high. It was often more expensive than gold. And you may have heard about frankincense and myrrh from the story of the Bible written in the book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, when three wise men came to visit Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem to praise their baby Jesus. And they brought gifts, frankincense, myrrh, and gold. And we used to hear the translation of this story as the three kings. So it was either the three wise men or the three kings from the east. But actually in Palestine, the Christians here, they talk about the three magi. And they refer to them either as astrologers, people who were very knowledgeable about the star constellations and who recognized that this special star meant that a great event was about to happen and that a king was born. But others say that the three men were Nabataeans, 
and they refer to an old text from the Old Testament of the Bible, from the book of Isaiah in chapter 60, in which we can read a prophecy from the prophet Isaiah about the future of Jerusalem. And I will read some of the verses for you and then explain. So this is from the Bible. And it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you, the riches of the nations will come. And here it comes. Herds of camels will cover your land. Young camels of Midian and Ephah. And all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. All Kedar's flocks will be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth will serve you. They will be accepted as offerings on my altar, and I will adorn my glorious temple. The rams of Nebaioth. Nebaioth, Nabat, Nabat. So the historian Flavius Josephus, a very famous Jewish historian from the first century, says that the Nabataeans come from the Nabaiot, who were mentioned here by Isaiah. So according to Flavius Josephus, the Nabataeans were the descendants of the sons of Ishmael. And if you're familiar with the Bible, then you know that Ishmael was a son of Abraham, and he had this son with one of his slaves, Hagar or Hagar. And the half-brother of Ishmael was Isaac. And Isaac was the son of Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And Isaac is considered to be one of the patriarchs. In all monotheistic religions, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are considered the patriarchs. But Ishmael was the son of a slave, and he was sent away because of the jealousy of Sarah. So according to Josephus, the sons of this Ishmael became the Nabaiot. And you can see that the root letters Nabayot and BT are the same root letters as the Nabataeans. According to scholars, the word Nabataean comes from these root letters and it is from Istanbat, which literally means deductive reasoning, but it has become known as water extraction or to dig for water. So the root letters of Nabataean NBT standing for digging for water. And that is exactly what the Nabataeans are known for. They were known for finding water in very dry deserts and for the knowledge of collecting and storing the little rainwater that fell in the winter. And the places where they collected the rainwater They would mark them in a secret way so that only they knew where to find water in that dry desert, which meant that any traveler coming over the trade route through the desert, they had to rely on the Nabataeans. They had to 
pay the Nabataeans in order to pass safely through the dry desert and have access to water. Now, imagine the distance that the traders had to cover on foot and with their camels to reach the Mediterranean Sea from the start to the end was about 1,800 kilometers. That is 1,118 miles. And with their camels, they would be able to cover about 35 kilometers per day, 21 miles per day. So the whole incense road had about 65 stops where they would stay overnight with their camels. And obviously it was very important that there was water on each stop. So these Nabataeans, they had a monopoly on the caravan trade. And in that time, the rulers of the area, now we're speaking about the second century before Christ, the rulers of the area were the Seleucid kingdom. I spoke about the Seleucids in previous episodes. So after the conquest of Alexander the Great and when he passed away at an early age, his generals started to fight over the power of the region and the region was divided between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. But at some point, the Seleucid kingdom, the rulers, became less powerful. They were weaker. And then the Nabataean kingdom started to increase in strength. Now, originally, the Nabataeans, they were a nomadic Bedouin people. They lived in the Arabian Peninsula and they spoke Arabic. But on their coins and on inscriptions, we see that they used the Aramaic writing and Aramaic is the same language that Jesus used to speak because it was the most common language in Palestine in that time. And then later, Greek became much more commonly used. And we see also that the Nabataeans later on start to write in the Greek language. So these Nabataeans, an Arab tribe that lived in the Arabian Peninsula, originally nomadic and Bedouins, they realized that it would be very lucrative to set up places for these traders on the incense route. And so they developed forts and towns to defend the route and to provide some support for the travelers. And of course, also support for their own population because the Nabataeans themselves also became part of the trade and they were very good at it. What they used to do, they used to send from their own people to live in the towns on the trade route. And these people who became locals, they used to buy goods when they were low price. So they bought with cheap prices. They used to store them until some of their Nabataean cousins or uncles would pass by and they could sell them these products with a good price because they had been buying them in bulk when the prices were low. And in this way, they could support each other and they could support their own tribe. And even though the Nabataeans at some point were really scattered around the Arabian Peninsula, some of them working on the trade route and others established in towns on the route or working as guides in the desert, whatever they did, they used to come together once a year in an annual event or festival to worship their ancestors. Because wherever a Nabataean died, far away from the capital of Petra or close by, 
eventually its bones would be buried in the family grave. If they were far away, they used to do the following. They used to dig a hole. Over that, they would put wooden branches. They would put the dead body on top of the branches and leave it there in the sun to be eaten by animals and birds until eventually the body would dissolve and the bones would fall down into the hole that they dug. And then later they would come and pick up the bones and the bones they would take to the annual festival and then bury the bones in the family grave. And this gave them a strong sense of community. So despite the fact that the Nabataeans were scattered around the area, they had this very strong sense of belonging and of being together and of community. And that's why when you go to Petra, you will see these big family tombs and each of the families, depending on where they were living, they would bring in their own architects. And that's why we see that the tombs are of different designs. Scholars think that the Nabataeans did not make the tombs themselves. They think that people brought in professional architects from different parts of the world, from the Greek world, from the Roman world, from the Arab world, and that they would be the designers of these tombs. And they have for a long time wondered why there were some very small compartments and why there were some very big places that looked too big to be tombs. And that's probably because these bigger areas were used to gather during the annual festival that was for the living people, the people that were still alive. And then the smaller niches and tombs were for the bones of the deceased people. Now, when the Romans entered the scene around 60 before Christ, they tried to take over the incense route. And then the Nabataeans started moving this route, the trade route, a bit more to the south into more difficult terrain to avoid the influence of the Romans. But the Romans turned out to be too powerful. And eventually in the second century after Christ, the Romans under Emperor Trajan conquered Petra, the capital of the Nabataeans, and then they annexed these Nabataean towns in the Nakab Desert to become part of the newly created Roman province of Arabia. And the Nabataean towns became part now of the Roman defense system on their southern border of their empire. And after that time, the Romans started to change the spices and incense trade route to go through Egypt. So now the traders would cross the Red Sea into Egypt and then they'd go further overland through Egypt. So that meant that this was the end of the incense route through the Nakab to Gaza. But the Nabataeans were very smart and innovative, and they managed, with their knowledge of rainwater collection, to start something unique and intriguing, namely the desert agriculture. And these days, when we read about how Israel made the desert bloom, well, that's nothing new because the Nabataeans already made the desert bloom, but they did it in a much more natural and sustainable way. They didn't divert water from the northern part to the southern part or plant trees that were not native and very bad for the environment. 
these Nabataeans actually had the knowledge on how to collect rainwater in the cities through a system of rooftop water collection and street water collection that through channels they would bring into cisterns and that was filled up with all the runoff water from the rain. Even though it didn't rain a lot, but when it rained, they collected it. And also when it rained from the higher parts to the lower parts, all the water would collect into flash floods. And so they made huge cisterns down in the valley to collect all that flash flood water. And sometimes in the winter, it would rain a lot in just a few hours of time. All that water would be coming down in big streams and they collected it and then they would take it up from those cisterns by donkeys and by just water carriers up to fill up the cisterns in the city. The Nabataeans in the Byzantine time converted to Christianity and we can see in the different sites that were excavated that there are a number of churches, including some of them with beautiful baptismal fonts with the shape of a cross. And the Nabataeans started to grow grapes. And with these grapes, they produced wine. And they could sell the wine to the Roman soldiers who were stationed in the area. And they probably also drank wine themselves. But if you visit the Nabataean cities, you will see a lot of grape presses and storages where they used to store the wine. So I visited Avdad. I still would love to visit also Shivta and Memshid and some of the other places, but I'll describe for you a little bit what Avdad looks like. It is a national park, so you have to pay an entrance fee, and it's really in the middle of the desert. So when you arrive, you have to drive up to the hill on which Avdad was built, and then you can park your car more than halfway up and the rest you walk and you have a beautiful view, magnificent view over the whole area around you. By the way, Avdad was named after the Nabataean king, Obodas III. And there is an old map from the 13th century. It's called the Poitinger map. And it's a map of the Roman Empire with the whole road system that they had in the Roman times. And on that map, you can see the town and it is mentioned as Oboda. So it was literally named after King Obodas, Oboda. And later, somehow, it transformed to becoming Abdad. And Abdad used to have several temples. They used to worship local gods. The Nabataeans didn't really have their own gods. Wherever they came, they used to accept the local gods and worship them. But these temples, they were later, when they became Christians, they were converted into churches. And in Avdad, we see two churches. They are pretty well preserved. Most of Avdad fell down in the earthquake of 630. I mentioned in several podcast episodes that Palestine had a lot of earthquakes almost every 100 years. And since the last one was in 1927... We are expecting that something can happen here in the coming years. So in 630, a big earthquake destroyed much of Avdad, but you can still see most of the foundation, the ruins, and also the excavators have done some reconstruction work. 
Inside the churches, we can see some inscriptions on the floor in Greek language. It seems that they used to bury people also in the church. And in the northern church, we can see that beautiful Byzantine baptistry where they used to baptize both adults and children. And it has a beautiful cross shape. It's very particular and you will find it also in, for example, in Shifta and in Mamshit, the other Nabataean cities that were excavated. We see a lot of ruins of residential houses and some of them give a very clear idea of how people used to live. There is a well-preserved Byzantine bathhouse. It's from the 4th century. It's partially reconstructed. It's a little bit down the slope of the hill and they used to feed it with rainwater that was collected in channels and that were being led to the bathhouse. On the top of Avdad, there is a Byzantine city fortress, and this is pretty magnificent. It's a fortress with a wide open courtyard in the middle, and then it's surrounded by walls and towers. And in the middle of the court, there is a big, deep cistern, and you can still see the water channels that used to feed the rainwater into the cistern. And you can imagine how this was the heart of the city. So relevant because without water, the city would not survive. Also, they found in Avdat several wine presses, I think five. And this shows how important winemaking was in that time. And most of the listeners know by now that I have a great passion for the history of caves in Palestine. And also here in Avdat, we found some really well-preserved caves that were used by the people who lived here. They used to build their houses in front or on top of these caves so they could use the caves mainly as a storage and especially because in the caves the temperature remains always the same degree Celsius, about 8 degrees Celsius, so it's pretty cool. It's very good for storing wine, for example, but also for storing wheat and for storing dried fruits and other products. So it was like their fridge, but without electricity. And um, for the Bible lovers among the listeners, there's one more story that I would like to share. Maybe you remember Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. He was the one who was in charge during the time that Jesus was trialed in Jerusalem, but he was also the one who ordered the beheading of John the Baptist. Now, this Herod Antipas was married to a Nabataean princess. He was married to the daughter of the Nabataean king, Aretas IV. And eventually he divorced her because he wanted to marry Herodias. And Herodias was the wife of his half-brother, Herod Philippi. And John the Baptist had criticized Herod Antipas and Herodias for the divorce and for the marriage with the wife of his brother. And she wanted revenge. So she wanted her husband to kill John the Baptist. And it seems that in 39 AD, the Nabataeans took their revenge and they defeated Herod Antipas. And that's how the historian Flavius Josephus interprets and explains this as a divine vengeance for killing John the Baptist, Herod Antipas gets defeated by the Nabataeans. 
There is definitely a lot more to say and to learn about the Nabataeans. I'm not a specialist. I just did my research to have enough information to fill up this podcast episode. But if you research more, there are many books written about the Nabataeans. There are many interesting videos that you can watch also on YouTube. They were very intriguing people. And it seems that over time they have just dissolved as a people and they have become part of the population. Some of them actually became Roman citizens and returned with the Romans back to Rome. And others have become part of the people that lived in Palestine. So I bet you that if Palestinians go and trace their ancestry, some people will definitely find that their roots are with the Nabataeans. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If in the future you are planning a trip to Palestine and you are interested to visit one or more of these Nabataean cities, you can do it by yourself, rent a car and drive down south. Or if you want a tour guide, of course, you can always get in touch. I would also like to remind you that in October we are organizing a program in Palestine. We're not going so far south in this program, but we'll be visiting several places in the West Bank. We will definitely visit Bethlehem and the UNESCO World Heritage Site of Batir. We will spend a day in Jerusalem, a day in Jaffa, in Jericho. We will go to Nablus, to Taiba, to visit the beer brewery. We'll spend two days in Abud, where we also do a day of olive picking, because it will be the olive harvest season. And we'll spend two nights with local families and the other nights in family hotels and guest houses. There's a lot of chance to meet with Palestinians, to learn about history and heritage. And of course, there's also free time to discover things by yourself. If you are interested to know more about this program, please visit the website storiesfrompalestine.info. There is a link in the show notes of this podcast. We can take maximum 15 people. So don't wait to register to make sure that you have a spot for this wonderful program that we're organizing for you to discover Palestine. Thank you for listening to Stories from Palestine. If you enjoy the podcast, then here are several things you can do to support the show. Tell your friends about the podcast. Share some of the social media posts on Instagram or Facebook. Start following the YouTube channel. You can also hear the podcast audio there. And soon I will start uploading videos. Sign up for the email list so that you get a reminder with a clickable link to the new podcast episode. And in the future, you will be updated about programs and trips that I will start to organize. And of course, you can donate to help me pay for hosting the podcast and the website and all the related recording costs. It's the only source of income I have at the moment, so you can imagine how much I appreciate every cup of coffee or falafel sandwich that you buy me on the coffee platform. All the links that you need can be found in the show notes and on the website storiesfrompalestine.info. That's it. I hope you will tune in again next week. <laughs>